I find it, it will be, it will be exciting. So last week, chapter 9 was our prayer of confession and repentance. And chapter 10 today is moving forward with what that confession and repentance is all about. And it's counting the cost today. What does it mean to count the cost? They, how do they continue on this path of being obedient? What is it going to look like for this nation, this people of God, in, mid, in the midst of this new spiritual revival? So simply put on your outline, uh, when you count the cost, you plan ahead. You take inventory of everything that is required to make sure you keep your eye on the ball. So you have this goal in front of you, and in order to reach that goal, you need to have an organized plan in place. There's a psychologist, um, Tom Muha, who wrote an article, and it's titled, Make a Public Commitment to Your Goals and Work Towards Them Every Day. And it's a secular article, and it's about how to keep commitments in the workplace and just life in general. But the principles, when I started reading the article, are so sound, and I really feel that they can be uh, used for us in counting the cost in our spiritual life. And in this article, Dr. Muha says that in order to be successful, studies show people benefit from writing down their goals. It's number one on your outline, writing them down publicly committing to pursue your desired outcome. And this part is crucial, he said, the public, public uh, committing. And then along with that, you um, uh, devise a list of support group. You have a support group, relationships that can hold you accountable. So having an action plan does three things for us, and it ignites our passion, it fosters teamwork, and it generates optimism. So these are the three essential ingredients that you are going to need to overcome the obstacles that you face if you want your plans to succeed. It's kind of like a formula for counting the costs. Debbie first. What's the third? Um, the, okay, the first was writing down your goals, writing them down. Oh, those three. Okay, th this is what having your action plan will ignite your passion, foster teamwork, and generate optimism. Okay. Covenant is a word that we've kind of touched on, but we really need to understand the word covenant as believers because covenants are the backbone of the whole entire Bible storyline because the Bible is a story of redemption and as these covenants unfold, um, it tells us what, God has, what promises God has made to certain of his people. If we don't understand the word covenant, we're not going to understand the Bible in its entirety and the story of redemption. A covenant, like we said a couple weeks ago, is a promise that God makes to his people or a certain person. And it's a promise that he cannot break. We're unfamiliar with that concept because... We make covenants or make promises and vows all the time, and we don't keep them. But God is not like that. He commits to us in that when he makes a covenant, 
it is steadfast and true. So the whole message of the Bible is coming from God, who has a covenantal love for us. On his side, the covenant cannot be broken. The history of salvation centers around the promise that God has made with several um, individuals and their families. The first we have is Noah. And we begin in Genesis 6.18. Um, we're going to read Genesis 9 if you want to turn there. But Genesis 6.18 says, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark, you, your sons, and your sons' wives. And then what happened? Then it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And it wiped out everything but Noah, his family, and the animals that God had told him to bring. So verses chapter Genesis 9, 13 through 17. Debbie, can you read that for us pretty loud and clear? Okay. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again be, become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So, and what is this bow that he's talking about? The rainbow. the rainbow, yeah. So it's kind of uh, kind of exciting that we can still see that today that God made with Noah and his family thousands of years ago. Maybe it's Emily in the news. No. <laughs> okay. We've got we've got a granddaughter who's taking her nursing boards today, so we're we're really focused on uh, on Emily here today. Um, the second covenant he made with Abram. So let's just turn over a couple chapters in Genesis 12. And I'm just going to read the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will also bless those who bless you, and he, him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so the covenant with Abraham was that he would give him land, he would give him descendants, he would give him blessings. Um, and all of this was made while Abram and Sarai had no children. We see later on in Genesis that God... Um, does not break his covenant, he gives Abram and Sarai a child, and he changes their names to Abraham and Sarah in lieu of that promise of the covenant. We have a covenant that God made with Moses. So if we turn to Exodus 19, now remember, Moses saw God or heard God speak out of the burning bush when he was in the wilderness, and the burning bush um, told Moses, you know, I have heard your people's cry. I am going to save them. Uh, you are going to be the leader that's going to lead them out of Egypt. And Moses did that. In, verse, in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, we have Israel at Mount Sinai. 
Moses is on top of the mountain. Moses is bringing down the laws. Moses is bringing down the Ten Commandments. And God tells Moses in verses 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, so even though God cannot break his part of the covenant, we obviously, as human beings, can break our part of the covenant. And there's consequences to that, which we are going to see. We then have the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7. And I'm not going to read that, but I wrote the verses for you if you want to go back and, and look that up. It's 12 through 17. But basically the sum summary of that is... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm throughout all generations. And of course he did that because the Messiah comes through the line of David. I will be a father to him and he a son to me. And when he commits sin, I will correct him. My loving kindness will not depart from him. He shall build a house in my name. And, of course, it wasn't actually David who was able to build the temple, but David made the plans for the temple, and his son, Solomon, was able to carry that, that out. But the covenant he made with David was that his, his line, his throne, would be for all generations. And, again, that comes about um, in the New Testament when Jesus is born. And then, lastly, we have the New Covenant, and that is Jeremiah 31, 34. And let's just turn there because I think this one is, this one affects us. <laughs> this is the covenant of grace. It's found in the Old Testament. Jeremiah prophesies, prophesies of it, but it's fulfilled in the New Testament with the birth of Christ. So 31 through 34. Would anybody like to read that? Does anybody have it? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I have it. Okay, thank you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teaches, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what God is saying in this new covenant is that no longer are they going to have to go about and tell uh, each other about the love of the Lord. They're going to have it written upon their hearts. They're going to know it. They're going to intrinsically already know it. So God has, who God has claimed is going to know uh, about him. And this also talks about where their hearts of stone, it's found in Ezekiel, the passage, but their hearts of stone will be turned to hearts of flesh. This covenant is also found, we're not going to turn there, but just so that you 
uh, know that it's also in the New Testament. It's also repeated in Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. And I think I wrote that um, on your outline. So these five covenants are actually the foundation of the entire word of God. And this is so important for us to grasp. Um, and because Christ, the, pro, the, the coming of Christ is the proclamation of the everlasting covenant. And we, when we understand how God promises himself to this people of, of, of Israel and ultimately to us because we are adopted into the Jewish faith, then we know that God is steadfast. We know that God's word stands and that he cannot lie. He cannot go back on his word. So when we realize that, then we understand that the covenant for us to understand is God is reliable. God is good all the time. Even when it doesn't seem like he is good, he is good all the time. And I challenge you to memorize this scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 1.20. And it says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are always yes in Christ. And our amen, in parentheses, which means we agree, uh, is spoken for his glory. Doesn't mean that he's going to give us everything we ask for. It just means that his promises, and there are some promises, I will tell you, that have conditions, okay? So it's not just like, oh, God will give me the desires of my heart. There's a condition with that. Yes, ma'am. Say it again, please. Which part? The verse? The verse. Yes, the verse is 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. And our amen is spoken for his glory. Okay? So God cannot go back on his word. And his son Jesus is obviously the ultimate promise to us. And it even says in Romans 8.38 that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. So we need to understand the covenant. I had this explained once. I'm going to see if I can do it justice. So I brought my big black umbrella. Okay. So this is like God's covenant. This is like God's covering. Okay. When we are obedient, just like the Israelites and they're under his protection and under his covenant, we're, we're, we're under his covenant. Okay. When we step out and we sin, we are outside of his covenant. It's not that God still doesn't love us. It's not that we've broke um, our salvation. It's just that we are no longer, this is, a, this is not a rule book. This is an instruction book. This is how we can feel safe and secure, okay? So being under his covenant, we are safe and secure. Think about it as like a hurricane and we're in the eye of the storm and we can, foolishly enough, we've done this before, we've gone out in the eye of the storm and it's completely calm. <clears throat> And yet, you know, you know that before and after, the winds are just whipping around. But that's kind of what being under the covenant, I kind of imagine it to be. Like even though you can see all around you the storms, it's like you're safe, you're protected. It doesn't mean that bad things are not still going to happen, but it's like that peace that passes all understanding can be with you, and you can still experience that joy even in the midst of storms. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, the people in this chapter have very tender hearts, 
they've heard Ezra read the Mosaic Covenant, the first five books of the Bible, in chapter 8, and they've understood it in a way that they've never understood it before. They realize that they have failed to live up to their obligations of the covenant, and Ezekiel, as he's reading, or Ezra, I'm sorry, or Ezra, as he's reading the Mosaic Covenant, is reading out of Leviticus to them. And again, uh, it's found in Leviticus 26, 14 through 18. I'm just going to kind of summarize it here for you. But it says, and they would have heard this, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all of these commandments, and if you reject my degrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commandments and so violate my covenant, I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fevers that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. You will plant in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all of this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. Okay? So God is very harsh here. It's very straightforward, harsh consequences. We see that as much blessing that he wants to bestow upon the people, he's also very clear that if they do not abide by his laws and his covenants and are under his protection, bad things are going to happen. I don't believe that this is a reason to say, you know, God is up there and, you know, he's going to bless us if we're good. And if we make one false move, he's going to strike us down. It's not that at all. It's just that. God wants his very best for us, and he knows that these Israelites have been so disobedient. Remember, we talked about that cycle last week. Seven times, you know, the people did what they thought was right in their own eyes. When we do what's right in our own eyes, we really, really get into trouble, okay? So God is just reminding them here. So the gravity of this occasion, this coming together and signing this document is marked by two things. And what are the people committing to? They've listened to the word of God. They confess their sins. They've committed to separating themselves from the surrounding nations. And they're going to devote themselves to the Lord with a written agreement. They're going to submit and they're going to obey to God's laws. And they're going to do this in three ways. They're going to obey God's laws in their families, in their workplace, and in their worship. Do you see that on your outline? Or is that, am I getting too far ahead? That might be a little bit further. We're going to come back to that point, though. So who are these people that are making this solemn vow? Let's now get to the lesson part. Okay, so we're going to go to Nehemiah verse we're going to go to chapter 9, verse 38, the very last verse of last week's lesson, because this is the transition verse that goes into 10. Because of all of this, or depending on which translation you have, it might say in view of all of this. This refers to all of the events that have happened in chapter 8 and chapter 9. So because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. The sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. 
and then moving on to verse 1 in chapter 10, on the seals of the names uh, Nehemiah the governor, and then it lists through verse 27 the names of the priests and the Levites and the people. Everyone old enough to understand and that has heard the word of the Lord read by Ezra at the water gate, remember it's there that they wept over their sin, and it's there that Ezra and Nehemiah told them, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go do this celebration, do this festival of booths, and remember how God has provided, how God provided in the wilderness. Go live in these makeshift tents for a week and commemorate this celebration that God is faithful. And so they did that. So they've recognized that God's goodness. Last week we had a history lesson. We went all the way back to how they're in this prayer. They're praising God from creation all the way through saving them through with the Egyptians all the way to now. So they are, God has gathered them together and they want to demonstrate their loyalty by making this proclamation by making this written agreement. They've included the names of the leaders, the priests, the Levites, all of them um, committing themselves to live according to God's word. It's not new. Uh, it's the same covenant that uh, God made with Moses at Mount Sinai that we read a few minutes ago. But living in exile in Babylonia, this covenant has not been obeyed. It has not been it has not been um, remembered. So they're returning to the covenant, okay? The covenant, like I said, never leaves. We leave it. We need to return. So now on your outline, why the public display? Well, first of all, it sends a message to all the surrounding nations that this group of people, this people of, of Israel, this people in Jerusalem, they've just built the wall, they are going to now serve the God of Israel. He is the God who's created the heavens and the earth, and they know that living of, under his protection, under this covenant, is where they want to be, and they are going to make that public. The second thing that they made it public is because it's a corporate agreement, and it invites accountability, not only being accountable to God, but being accountable to one another. So let's just talk accountability for, for a moment here. Accountability is accepting responsibility for your own actions, okay? It's giving an account for your actions. In Romans, we're all held accountable to God. In Romans 14, 12, it says, so then each of us will give an account to God himself, okay? So each of us are going to stand before God and be held accountable for the things that we have done here on this earth in this life. And Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. That was Hebrews 14.1? Hebrews 4.13. 4.13. Okay. So scripture is very, very clear that we are going to be held responsible for our words, our actions, our thoughts, even our motivations, okay? It doesn't mean that we're to be a doormat and not have any words, actions, thoughts, or motivations in, in, in any way, shape, or form. It just means that when they turn to not a good place, um, we just need to learn how to have self-discipline, okay? And if we have this group of accountability, 
a group of accountability partners we can go to and say, you know, pray for me. I'm struggling in this way or pray for me. Um, I need help in this. Yes. You know, it, that's such a trendy thing right now, especially with like, you know, with all your steps and, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the accountability with Alcoholics Anonymous and all that. But honestly, this is what the church is supposed to be. It's a, you're supposed to have a separate group. You're supposed to, each one of us is to be accountable to one another. And, you know, I think we miss that because, you know, we're American. We're like, everyone keep our distance or whatever. But I, I don't, I think in the New Testament, it was pretty clear that what was happening and, you know, case in point was Ananias and Sapphira. Like, mm -hmm. that didn't go very far, you know. Um, I just kind of feel like we have distanced ourselves because we want to, we don't want to be that open. And we've lost the blessing of that, of being in each other's lives more boisterously. <laughs> right. That's I like and I and I'm huge and I'm a huge fan of the rooms of recovery, you know, just because of my work and you know some personal experiences as well. And you're so right because Bill W, who is you know Alcoholics Anonymous founding father, he built the principles of AA on scripture. And I have gone through the twelve steps very scripturally, and each one is now they cannot call it a Christian organization; they have to call it spiritual and. You can make your higher power the doorknob or a clock or whatever, which is just so hideous to me. But literally, you're so right. It's what the church should have been, um, and especially to these people because, you know, they obviously, you know, were, were dealing with horrific struggles. And um, I just have a, a heart and a passion for, for people struggling with, um, with addictions. But uh, And they have sponsors, which is accountability. Um, so very, very biblical. Um, you, are, you are right. So... Even AA and Rooms of Recovery are built on these principles, which is very cool. Um, so we, but not only are we to be account, we're going to be held accountable to God, but we're going to be held we're to be accountable to one another. There's a verse in Proverbs twenty seven seventeen that says, "Iron sharpens iron." Okay, so friends, yes, Proverbs seven twenty seven seventeen. So what this is about is about living in Christian community, growing together. It's all based on growing and having a personal relationship with Jesus. And accountability isn't merely about controlling a behavior or enforcing consequences on someone. It's really about growing deeper in Christ and helping each other along. It's about seeing the things of God. And it keeps us connected to the body of Christ. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoings, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you will not be tempted. Okay? So that gentle spirit. When somebody is down, the first thing you want to do is just rip their heads off. I get it. But a gentle spirit is so much more effective. So that is really what jumped out to me. We are to carry one, another bur one another's burdens. And in this way, it says, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Okay? 
Accountability gives us a freedom, believe it or not, and it sets the stage for restoration and healing, okay? Accountability exposes our guilt and shame. It's speaking the truth in love to someone you care about. You know, we can speak the truth all day long, but again, coming back to that gentle spirit, if we don't do it in love, they're going to tune you out, okay? And I don't mean that there's not a time when you can't be firm with somebody and set your boundaries and, and so forth, but speak the truth in love. And we know, we know the truth. We can speak that with confidence. You know, as a, as a counselor, I used to tell my clients all the time, not everyone deserves to hear your story because some people sadly cannot be trusted to hold your story with that precious touch that needs to be. Uh, but the healing comes through talking and admitting our weaknesses and exposing our sinful natures to one another in a way, in a, in a safe, secure, trusted environment. You know, I'm gonna go down a rabbit trail here for a second because does anybody know the difference between guilt and shame? I was told that guilt is from Satan. Well, my definition, for what it's worth, guilt is, says to us, I've done something wrong. So I need to go make amends. I need to apologize. I need to go ask for forgiveness. Guilt is what drives us to the cross. You know, God uses our guilt to drive us to the cross. Shame, on the other hand, guilt, I've done something bad. Shame, I'm a bad person. If anybody knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't accept me. It's just, you know, I, I'm nothing. Which a lot of people are really stuck in their, in their shame. Have you heard that, that song that's playing now? Uh, Look what you've done. Uh, she talks about the guilt where people are piling on her. Mm. And then she turns it around to, look, to God or Jesus. Look what you've done. Yeah. It's beautiful. I, yeah. Send me a link to that. I'd like that. Okay, the, the very scary thing about shame is we want to stuff it down. We don't want people to see because we're embarrassed. And like I said, we think that we're bad. And if anybody knows what we've done, they're not going to accept us. So like I would tell my clients, you know, when you pull that shame up, when you pull it up, because what happens in the dark, it grows. So when you pull it up and you expose it to the light, which is Jesus Christ, um, it shrinks. Okay, so shame in the light of things dies. Okay, so, and the light is Jesus. He is the only one who can take away our shame. So just like Debbie was talking a, a second ago, it, it's a heart issue, and we need to bring it um, to Jesus. But accountability helps us to get to this point sometimes. It helps us to get to the point of exposing our guilt and even exposing our shame. And again, I strongly suggest that you, if you're thinking about asking someone to be your accountability partner, it's an awesome experience. I've done it a couple times um, in my growth and, and it just, it's amazing. Because it makes you feel like you're not the only one alone who's struggling with things. But it's also a way that it just keeps pointing back to the Lord, pointing back to the Lord. But I will tell you, if you're considering doing this, really pray Pray, pray about God leading you to someone who you can trust um, and someone who you know uh, would not take your story and use it against you because 
sadly enough, even people in the church um, <coughs> do that, and it's, it's very sad. Verses 1 through 27, I'm not going to attempt to read because, again, it's a list of all these names. Uh, and, but it lists Nehemiah as the governor. Nehemiah is still the governor here. And it, it, and it lists uh, Zedekai, and he is most likely the scribe responsible for writing this document. Verses 2 through 13, it's the list of religious leaders, the priests, the Levites. And lastly on the list is the local leaderships. And these are names that are also found if you trace back and parallel them. They, in chapter three, when we talked about the dream team, these are also the, the men who uh, were in charge of supervising and had the, their sections uh, to re, uh, rebuild the wall. So these men who helped rebuild the wall a year or so later, two years later, whatever the time frame may be, are still, are still in it. They're still committed. So we're going to read verses 28 and 29. And this is going to be talking about the obligations of the covenant, what this is going to look like. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the sing singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. So again, it's talking about, it's not a new covenant, it's the same covenant that was made to, uh, that Moses, that God made with Moses, and Moses um, stated that to the people of Israel. So it's not a new covenant, but they understand that every child, every adult that has separated themselves from the pagan people are going to now obey and commit to God's laws. It's reminiscent of Deuteronomy 29, 10 through 13, where, and we're not going to take the time to read that, but it's the same commitment that was made generations before uh, this time uh, when Moses first gave uh, this covenantal um, promise. Dedication to God will always be rooted in knowledge and submission to God's word. God's word sharpens who we are and what we do. Either way, either way you fall on the side of that, you know, God's word is the divining uh, measurement. Separating themselves from the pagan nation means that they separated themselves from ungodliness kind of like for us today in John 17 where it says we're to be in the world but not of the world. You know, it's like we can't and we shouldn't separate ourselves from non-believers and all the things that are going on in the world, but we can still separate ourselves from the ungodliness. Just because we're finding ourselves in the mix of people who are not living according to God's laws, we can still be godly. Okay? Is that number one? No, okay. we're not there yet. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Just Sorry. Um, okay. They swore a curse on themselves as well. They were so committed to being held accountable to keep the covenant that they put themselves under this curse if they fail. And what is the curse? Well, we read about it in Leviticus. It's the curse of, you know, God 
um, making them feel chased and on the run, even when nobody was chasing them, um, working in vain, even their crops uh, would not be um, planted for themselves. Um, people would come and steal their crops. They would suffer um, horrible diseases. So their solemn commitment, now we get to number one, is their families, okay? So let's read verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay, now if you recall, uh, we read, I think it was last week or the week before the Shema, that was that prayer in Deuteronomy 6, where it said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your might. These are the words which I am commanding you today. And you're going to teach them diligently to your children. You're going to talk of them when you sit and when you stand and when you walk and when you lie down and when you rise up. And remember, we talked about how they carried these little prayers um, on the frontlets um, in these little boxes on their foreheads and on their wrists in these little boxes. So that's what they're committing to. They're committing to not no longer intermarrying with the pagans, giving their sons and daughters to find wives from these surrounding nations, even though, and we talked about this a few lessons ago, even though that was very lucrative financially for them, for whatever reason, they, were make, they would make alliances uh, financially because of uh, intermarrying. But they were going to stop that because they knew that their commitment to God was based on their religious beliefs. And the, pagan, the, the paganism infested and infected their religious beliefs. Um, the women or the men that were from these pagan religions would bring their, their culture into, uh, into the Israelites. It wasn't a matter of, it's not a racial thing, it was a spiritual thing. Okay, it was not a racial thing at all. Um, the second thing they were going to submit to is they were going to submit to God in their business practices. And verse 31, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And I know Karen brought that point out a few lessons ago about every seventh year they would um, do a sabbatical year, a year of forgiveness. So they realized that they needed to keep the Sabbath holy. And again, it would have been if they shut down on the Sabbath, these pagan nations would come around the walls. They would come around the city and they would want to sell their wares. And so they were afraid that they were going to be taking business away from them if they closed and kept the Sabbath holy. So recommitting to keeping the Sabbath holy was a huge step for them, was a huge step in, you know, God's going to still provide for us, even though these people are all around us are going to try to, you know, take our business. Uh, every seventh year, like I said, was a sabbatical year. There were no crops planted. Anything that grew uh, was on the land was to be given to the poor, okay? And, and did not belong to the owners of the land. It belonged to the community as a whole, and it belonged to those who were in need. And then every seventh year, anybody owing a debt was forgiven of that debt, okay? Again, not out of anything, but God will provide. Um, this, is, this is how God takes care of his people. I think there's an actual thing to the land, too, that the soil, it, yes. It's so good for the soil to do that, and how farmers now just constantly do it, it gets depleted. 
faded yes. versus being regenerated, so to speak. And you would know our our, our planter. Well, no, no, not <laughs> our, that way. No, 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 I know. No, I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is so true. I've heard of that too. So you know, the mm -hmm. the land just needs to rest. Yeah. yeah. Every seventh year. Absolutely. Thank you. I don't. I wonder if any farmers even do that anymore because of that. You know. I don't. I know, know they rotate the crops. Yes. But they don't. I don't know if they leave it go for a whole year. <laughs> yeah. It's trending now with the regenerative the younger farmers coming up, tealing the land, I think they're yeah. doing it now. Yeah. The pesticides they use now weren't used back then. Before. No. So that's part of the problem. Right. Yeah, that's true too. So, but again, you know, God has, God has rules to protect us, not to inflict trouble and harm on us. The third way that they were going to make the solemn commitment was to their religious practices, their faith, Okay. They were going to support the work of the temple, okay? There's an annual tax that also needed to be paid, if you recall, because they were taxed by the king, Artaxerxes, um, who allowed them to leave Babylonian, Babylonia and come back to uh, the land of uh, Israel. It also covered the costs of the showbread, or if your version says the bread of presence. And this was really cool. I kind of researched this a little bit. There was always bread on the tabernacle table in the temple, okay? It was made into little cakes or big cakes, and it was 12 loaves, signifying the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were six on each corner, so to speak. And what it was is uh, it was, they were put there and each week they were removed. And what happened was the priests and the Levites, that's what they used for their bread for the week. It did not get stale. It did not um, go bad. And because remember, when all the tribes were given an inheritance and the lines were drawn, the priests um, and the Levites were given no land. They were to be taken care of by the other tribes. So just one of the ways in which God provided for them. But when you think of it, the bread on this show table sig signifies Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say in the New Testament? He is the bread of life. Bread of life. <clears throat> so it's so cool that, you know, that the, inner, the Old Testament connects us to the New Testament in such, we think of them as maybe not significant, but they are hugely significant. And also, too, they knew, like when Jesus said, I am the bread, <clears throat> Like that resonated with them. Yes. They knew what the showbread yes. was. They knew what that meant, and that <clears throat> it was all about coming into the presence of the Lord. I mean, that's yes. what the whole Old Testament was. You know, only the high priest gets to go into the holy of holies, and and the fact is that now through Christ we can go into the presence. He, in fact, is God with us. He is present, um, and then the whole communion. Right builds on that, that we actually internalize the bread and the wine because now, and now it's in us. It's like, it'll blow your mind if you think about it. It does. It, yeah, it is, really it is good. really, it's so cool. As I, I, I love the Old Testament just for the, that reason, you know, because everything points. Every book in the Bible points to Jesus from Genesis to all, every book in the Old Testament. It also provided in for them to 
commit to practicing, uh, to submitting to God in their religious practicing, it also meant that they committed their tithes and offerings, their, their first fruits of everything, uh, firewood for the offerings, because remember, they had to uh, do burnt offerings regularly, so they needed firewood. Um, and the priests and the uh, family and their families needed to be cared for. So the first grains, the first fruits, the first olives, the first wines, um, all were brought and stored at the temple so that throughout the year they could care for their priests. Because remember, they hadn't been caring for their priests. They had not been doing this. So by giving their tithe to the Lord's temple and storing uh, in their warehouses, they promised um, not to neglect the house of the Lord. They promised to make that, again, their priority. There are seven characteristics of the Israelites who signed this document, and I put this on your outline as well. Their commitment is personal. They wanted to put their name in writing for all to see. This document was made public, and that's the second. It was made public. It was put on display to encourage one another so they could see who was all in. It was practical. It wasn't just lip service. There were specific actions that they had agreed to that they would carry out. And if they were not carried out, they had put themselves under the curse of God, which is a very scary place to be if you're not in obedience. Their commitment was powerful. It had an impact on every aspect of their life, as we've just talked about. It had an it had a impact on their family. It had an impact on their business practices. It had an impact on their finances. And it had an impact on their religious uh, practices. And number five, their commitment was the right thing to do. They had been unfaithful and disobedient for so many years that generations before them had broken this covenant, and they needed to renew themselves, and they needed to dedicate themselves to God. So they needed to come back and do the right thing. They knew what the right thing was. They had heard the law read. Um, Ezra had, again, remember, he set his mind to, to know the word of God and to teach and preach the word of God. So he had been doing what he was uh, created to do. So they have decided that they want to renew themselves and dedicate themselves back to God. And most importantly, I think their commitment was based on God's word. They had cried out to God. They had been taught the word, and they committed it. They committed to it because God's word just kind of drew them. He drew them in their, in their hearts. George, uh, uh, Jim Elliott, I don't know if you know, uh, aware of that name. He was a missionary who went to Ecuador him and his wife and their little infant daughter. And he went with a team. I think there were four of them. And he went to the Indians in Ecuador. And upon arriving there, um, he was killed by the very people that he sought to uh, bring to the Lord. But he quotes, and this is such a, a, good, a good quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Okay. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He counted the cost of his life, but his wife and his daughter had said that they know he would never have changed a thing, even if he had already known um, the outcome. 
and if given the chance, he would do it all over again. And it was this driving force of Jim Elliott that led some of his team members, um, especially one of his team members' sons, um, who was a small, small child. I think he was five or six at the time when his father, alongside Jim Elliott, was killed with the spears of these um, Indians. It led him to go back to this same village in Ecuador, and he actually witnessed, um, it gives me chills, he, he witnessed to these men, and the actual man who murdered his father uh, became like a surrogate parent to him. And he actually came to the, the, um, the States. There was a, a, a movie several years ago, it was called The End of the Spear, or something of the Spear, mm -hmm. and it was Steve Saint who witnessed to this man. And they had a movie, a documentary. Uh, it's a great movie, um, really worth watching. And this man has just become such a, um, a lifeline um, to both of them. They've been healed so much through this relationship. And again, all because um, one man's quote, you know, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So I know it's a quicker lesson than, than normal, but um, it's, a, it's a full lesson. So I really want you to, in your groups today, if you can, talk about what, about the cost. What does it cost you to, what does it, how to count the cost of following Jesus? And what does it cost you if you're disobedient? Because I think sometimes we forget about that. What does a life of disobedience look like? when we're not under the covenant, not under the protection. We're still believers. Nothing can take away our salvation. But what does it look like when we get rebellious like the Israelites? So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this lesson, Lord. And we thank you that you require us to count the cost because it's so important, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you keep your covenant no matter what because we are so rebellious sometimes and we just... We don't understand the love that you have for us. I just pray, Lord, that you would just internalize this lesson. Um, help us to really focus on what it, what it means to count the cost. And we just, we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.